So the year was 1535, and William Tyndale was on the run. He had left England and gone to the continent where he was trying to avoid the persecution because he had been actively translating the Bible from Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek into English. He had encountered Luther's Bible that had been published in 1522, and that Bible had transformed and been transforming German society. And, and William Tyndale saw the value and the priority that every plowboy in the field and every maiden in the milk stall could access the Word of God and be able to read it in their own tongue. And so as a result of that, Tyndale had spent his life's work to translate the Bible. He had been trained at Oxford, so he, he had worked hard in his studies, and he had been very effective in learning Greek and Hebrew. And as he translated it, what he found was that this work of translation actually was in opposition to the Roman Catholic Church of his day. The, the Catholic Church of Tyndale's day believed that that the, the Scriptures needed to be preserved, and they needed to be preserved in, in the Latin that had been handed down from the 4th century to the church by Jerome, and, and the, the translation that, that Jerome had done had been a good translation, though it had several points that were problematic to it. There had been some translation errors. And as a result of that, William Tyndale wanted to go back to the original, go back to the Greek, and go back to the Hebrew, and he wanted to translate it so that every person could access the Word of God in their own tongue. That he didn't want people to have to be dependent upon the church to be able to give them the Word of God, that every person should have access. Today we have multiple copies. If you're like me, you've probably got a, a shelf of Bibles. There's different translations. We, we can access them in various degrees of complexity from very basic English to very complicated English, that, that we have translations more than we can probably appreciate, that there are scholars today who have grounded and rooted themselves in the Scriptures and know them very well. But in 1535, as Tyndale was on the run, he was betrayed by a false friend, Henry Phillips. While he was in Brussels, Tyndale was turned over to the authorities, and as a result of that, he was imprisoned in a city north of Brussels. And as a result of his imprisonment, he would wait for his execution. About 150 years ago, a letter of Tyndale's was found. It was found where he had been writing. He had been writing to uh, an individual, the, 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 the governor, it's called, of, of the prison in which he stayed. And Tyndale wrote these words as he was facing a long, cold, dark, lonely winter. He said, he wrote, I entreat your lordship this being to the one who is in charge of the prison, and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here during winter, you will request the procurer to be kind enough to send me from my goods, which he has in possession, a warmer cap, for I suffer extremely from cold in the head, a warmer co coat also, for that which I have is very thin, 
Also, a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. It's long before ripped jeans were cool, I guess. I wish also his permission to have a lamp in the evening, for it's wearisome to sit alone in the dark. But above all, I entreat and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the procurer that he may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible. What did Tyndale want? A warmer cap? A warmer coat? Cloth to patch his pants? A lamp? But above all, he wanted his Hebrew Bible. He wanted the original scriptures that he could hold in his hand, that by the lamp in the darkness of night and when he was alone, that he could have the scriptures. He needed, that, he needed this book because he found that there was something above all that would not just warm his head and his arms and his legs, and not just light a cell, but warm his heart and warm his soul. And it was the, the Scriptures. We, we, need to, we need to come back over and over again and discover, like Tyndale, why is it that the Bible is so utterly important to us? And why should we make 2024 a year where we devote ourselves to the Word? That we get to know this Word, that we read it, that we pray it in, and that we take it in. In Psalm 19, David does something incredibly profound. He, he says in verse 10, more to be, literally it's more to be coveted than gold, than much fine gold. It's the same word that God had used in the Ten Commandments when God had said that you shall not covet the belongings of your neighbor. But here David says you should covet God's word more than gold, and you'll find it to be sweeter to your taste than honey, even drippings of the honeycomb. And so, this idea of coveting usually has a, a negative connotation, but here, David has it in a very positive sense. That's why in our English Bibles, it's typically translated as more to be desired, more to be coveted. It's, it's to be longed for. God wants us to covet His Word more to be desired than gold, than riches. And there are six reasons that David offers in this psalm as to why God's Word, six reasons why. Actually, in, in Psalm 18, David begins this song of praise to God, and the, the response of Psalm 18 of, of praises to God is Psalm 19. And David sings this song of praise and as he sings it, he gives six reasons why we should value the Scriptures and what they will do for us. So let's take a look at those six things. Starting in verse 7, the first thing is that the Word of God, why should we read it in 2024? It's because you want to be restored. The psalm begins, we'll quickly cover verses 1 through 6. The psalm begins, and many scholars have suggested that this is probably two psalms that have been melded together, which is quite ridiculous because this is only a product of people who have too much time and energy to think such thoughts and aren't really considering what has been written. 
David is actually singing in response to all of God's glory and greatness that he has seen as God as king in Psalm 18. And as in response to God being king in Psalm 18, David sings about how God speaks. In verses 1 through 6, we just simply have that God speaks without words, though there are words, but there are not words, in all of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim His handiwork. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words where their voice cannot be heard. In other words, God has given evidence of Himself all around in creation. But I've said many times before that you can have a knowledge of God by going out into creation, but you will only get a certain limited knowledge of God. If you go out into creation, what you will discover is that there is a ferociousness, there is a power that can be terrifying. And you can't get the sense from creation that there is a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. You can get the sense that there is a mighty God, a powerful God, an awesome God, a beautiful God, but what about a gracious and compassionate God? And so in response to that, David not only says that creation speaks with all of these words in verses 1 through 6, but then in verses 7 through 10, he describes that there is a God who actually speaks very clearly. And the way that God speaks is that He speaks by His Word. In verses 7 through 9, we actually have six refrains. Each one describes not God, but the Lord. Verses 1 through 6 talk about God, Elohim, but verses 7 through 9 talk about Yahweh, God's personal name, the Lord. And in it, it connects not only the personal name of God, but how God has spoken. It's, it speaks of His Word over and over and over again. Each time it speaks of this Word, and it uses a different way of describing His Word. It describes God and how He has spoken, and then it describes the benefit that we receive in each one of these verses. And the first thing that we are told is that this word is one that restores. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Here what we have is that the first thing, what I did was, all I, I'll just explain to you how I put together my sermon for today. All I did was I took verses 7 through 9 and I made a couple of columns. God's word, how it's described, was the first column. The second column was, what is the benefit that it gives to us? And the third column was, I was trying to think, what's the problem that it's addressing? So if the problem is that we need to be restored, here the sense is that every person is going through life, and as we face life, when we get up in the morning, for many people, the anguish and dread that they face is overwhelming. It's incredibly difficult. That life is hard. Yes, it's a gift, but at the same time, it's incredibly hard. There is a lot of pain in life. And what's going to keep you going? David says what will keep you going, what will restore your soul, what will restore your life, what will give you strength when you have no strength to go on, is that the law of the Lord is perfect. 
Now, when we hear the word law, we typically think of rules. We think of governmental laws. But here the word is actually the word Torah. And Torah has this idea of God's instruction, God's revelation. It's not so narrow as rules and commandments and laws. It actually is far broader. It's about what God has spoken and what God has said. And what God has spoken and what is said is described as being perfect. Actually, quite literally, we could say that God's Word is flawless. This is the kind of word that is used in the Old Testament, for example, in Leviticus 1, verse 3, where it's described as a sacrifice that is brought to be brought to the Lord was to be without spot or blemish. It was to be flawless. There, there is no stain. There is no impurity about it. That's why we get the sense of it's perfect. God's instruction is without spot. It's without blemish. It's without fault. It is absolutely pure. And as a result of that, the, the, the benefit that it gives to you is it, it's a reviving, it's a restoring. So it's not just merely this sense in which it can give, give you, make you a Christian, that's true, but it's the sense in which even Christians get discouraged, get depleted, get run down, fall into temptation and sin. And the word that David uses here is the same one he uses in Psalm 23, he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And what God's Word is intended to do for us is to restore us. It's intended to breathe life back into you when you feel like life has sucked the life out of you. That there are times where all it feels like is that getting out of bed is a chore. And God has given us His very Word because he knows, he knows how hard life can be. He knows that you need hope beyond what you can see. And if you try to get hope from this life just based off of what you see, unless you're an extremely optimistic person, all you're going to find is that there are troubles and sorrows that await you. But when you discover that God has far more and He's promised more, when you discover that his instruction is without flaw or error, it is intended to revive you. It's intended to restore you. It's, it's that sense in which, where do I go when I have no hope? I go to the Lord. And I find that he speaks a word that is gracious and true and is rooted not in a wishful hope, I just hope this will happen in the future, but a hope that is grounded in the certainty that when God speaks, He acts. So the first thing He says is that He gives us His Word so that we would be the restored. So why should we read the Bible this year? Because we all need to be restored and revived in our soul. The second reason that we find is in the second half of verse 7 is that we need to be wise. Not only is the law of the Lord perfect, reviving the soul, we are told that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That word testimony there is used in the book of Exodus a number of times, specifically Exodus 31, verse 18, to describe the Ten Commandments, that when Moses had received the testimony of the Lord and he brought it before the people, that, that it was the very law, the very instruction, the very Torah of God. And so here is what God has spoken, is what God testifies to. 
And what God testifies to is not just, here, I'm going to give you rules to live by, but also, I want you to be wise. Why does He want people to be wise? I think if we go back to the story of the Exodus, and we think about God giving His commandments to His people, it's pretty clear. When you have been living as a slave for generations, when all you have known is an identity as a slave, how are you going to live skillfully when all you have had to do is function to survive? How do you move from survival How do you move from surviving to thriving? God had given His commandments not as a burden to His people, but He had given them to His people because He had said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. As a result of me saving you, I want to make wise the simple. This is why the Scriptures are not just full of commandments, they're also full of wisdom. So what we find in, in, as we saw in the book of Proverbs, is that what God's Word is intended to do is to make wise the simple. Listen to Proverbs 1, verses 4 through 6. This is to know wisdom and instruction, Solomon says, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and to the one who understands, obtain guidance. Proverbs 1, 22 says, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? What the law of the Lord does, the testimony, the commandments of God, the testimony that we are told is, is it makes wise the simple. And the reason that it makes wise the simple is that we are told in these verses that it's sure that you can have a confidence that when God speaks, what God is speaking of is something that is reliable. We live in a world where you have more information than you can ever process in a day. And you don't know which news source is reliable or not. It all depends upon which person's perspective you get it from. Are they on the political left? Are they on the right? What's their bent? Were they there? Everybody has bias. How do I know what's reliable? It can only be reliable if the person who gives you the information actually sees the whole picture from beginning to end and has knowledge of everything that's going on. And our God is the one who knows all things. He's all-knowing. And as a result of that, when He testifies to what can make you wise, it's not based on just a matter of perspective. It's actually based on the matter of a God who knows beginning and end. Why should we read the Bible in 2024? Not only will it restore your soul, but it will give you something that is reliable so that you can be wise. Because it's coming from the only person who has that all-knowing nature. So the third reason we ought to press on in the Scriptures is that it is to make us to be joyful. We see that in verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. This word precepts has the idea of practical commands. And the root of the word precept has this sense in which there's some sort of authority to it. So it's not just 
authoritative because I'm going to tell you what to do, but because it works. It works from beginning to end. And, and that it's something to be kept, which is why in Psalm 119, when David talks about the very commands of God and why we should know them, in Psalm 119, verse 4, it says, You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. The commandments of the Lord, we are told here, are not mere advice, but are right They teach us what is right and wrong, and what they are intended to do is not give you something that is just right or wrong so that you would feel a burden about what's right or wrong, but it's to rejoice the heart. John will say this in 1 John 5 too, that his commands are not burdensome. The reason that God gives us his commands is that he would lead us in the right way. He is not intending to lead you into misery. That's not the purpose of his commands. But when you face hard times, what you need is you need to know what's right and what's true and what's good and what's pure and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy so that you would think about such things. And when you know what the right thing is to do when times are hard, it can give you sustaining joy that enables you to keep going. Even if everybody else disagrees with you, But God is clear, you follow God, because you know that's where joy is found, and you follow Him. And so, we not only follow the, we we read the Word of God, we need more of the Word of God to be restored, we need it to be wise, we need it to be joyful, but the fourth reason is that we need to be enlightened. Here we see the second half of verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now, one of the things that I noticed is that, do you notice it doesn't say the commandments, plural? It says the commandment of the Lord, singular. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. If you've ever tried to walk across a dark room that maybe you're familiar with, you'll find that you're still doing what? Putting out your hands, you're trying to make sure that you're not bumping into anything. I often walk through this auditorium at the end of the day and I head out the east doors when I'm walking home. And this week I did something very foolish. I turned off the lights first and I tried to walk across the auditorium, which I've done many times. The chairs were set up, and I have a general idea as to where the chairs are. I still generally try to feel my way through. I can kind of see from the little bit of light coming in the east doors where the chairs are. But on this particular occasion this week, as I was walking out, preparing to go to that door, there was an extra row of chairs set out at the back there. And I walked full speed into them. And I sent chairs flying and dropped things in my hands and dinged up my shin really good, and I felt really good leaving work. (laughs) What I should have done is I should have turned on the light, and it would have given me the ability to see. But thinking that I was saving time, I didn't turn on the lights. 
And what happens when you try and walk in a dark place, even if you think it's familiar territory, is that you're bound to run into some sort of big problem. Here we're told that the commandment, singular, of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And one of the things that I find about the, the, the Scriptures, Psalm 119, verse 105, will say this, um, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What I find is that by staring at the Scriptures, often there are things that I notice for the very first time, like I did this week with this verse. The commandment, singular. Suddenly a light was shining for me, even in looking at verse 8. Why is it that the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes? Aren't there 613 commandments in the Old Testament? Why, why is it just only one? And why is that one commandment pure? Because we could say, as Jesus would say in Matthew 22, that the law could be summed up in this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And actually, everything else is the outworking of loving God. Loving people is the outworking of loving God. Knowing what God has commanded is loving God. And loving God, actually, is there anything that is purer than loving God? That this singular command, though it's fleshed out because we need wisdom and we need understanding and we need help to know what loving God looks like because we are so reductionistic that we can just think, yeah, I had my quiet time and me and God are good and we can live with disastrous, all sorts of disastrous relationships or behaviors or attitudes in our lives and think, I'm loving God. But the commandment of the Lord actually, what it does is it shines a light on everything else. And the reason we need the Word of God in 2024 is that it's going to shine a light on everything else. That when we talk about loving God, what it's going to do is it's going to enable us to see everything else far more clearly. How to love God and how to love others. And so David can say the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, which is another reason we should be reading the Scriptures. The fifth thing that I want to pull out from these is that not only do we be restored, become wise, joyful, enlightened, but the Scriptures are able to enable us, they enable us to persevere. Here in verse 9, there's actually a shift. It says, the fear of the Lord the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. I've said elsewhere that what the fear of the Lord is, it's the Old Testament's way of talking about repentance and faith. That we all need constant course corrections. That we all have things in our lives that are sinful and dishonoring to God and cause pain to others. And the Old Testament way of talking about change is the fear of the Lord, that we regard God as holy. And what do you do when you are confronted with something in your life that is wrong? You change it. Sometimes we 
have done wrong and wrongs have been done to us. And the reasons why we can end up doing wrong is incredibly complicated. We, we sin because we are creatures who have fallen into sin, and what we need is we need help because we're told here the fear of the Lord is clean. And that word clean, you, you can connect it back again to the, the practices of Israel when they would go into the tabernacle. Leviticus 10, verses 10 and 11, for example, would talk about how there were clean and unclean things. And in order to approach God to come into His presence, you needed to be cleansed. And what here David is saying is that the way that we come to God, the way that we approach God is by repentance and faith, is that we confess our sins, we change, and we never stop needing to change. We never stop needing to trust. We never grow past the most basic elements of the Christian life. Repentance and faith are the things that we need for all of our lives. And so, the fear of the Lord is an attitudinal component here, that it is the central message, actually, of the Bible, that from the very beginning to the very end, that the problem that we have is that we've been separated from God because of sin, and the way that we come back to God is by repentance and faith. Not by trying harder. You don't read your Bible in 2024 because you think that's going to get you to heaven. You read your Bible because you want to draw close to God. So often what we've done is we've created a quiet time self-righteousness practice because we think that, well, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, 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 so I better grow. And then it doesn't become this thing that gives you joy and makes you wise and enlightens you. Instead, what it does is it just becomes something that is drudgery. But the reality is that you do have to endure because life is hard. And there are going to be all sorts of things and temptations that come that cause us to not want to be in God's Word. But the goal of God's Word is that you would endure so that you would know Him and love Him. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we open the Scriptures. It's not because we need more commands and more rules. It's because we need to know God and who He is. And we need a word that is enduring. And the only way that this word can be enduring is if it comes from one who has preserved it for us. This word has not come down to us in the, the Greek and the Hebrew, so that you have to learn Greek and Hebrew, because there are religions that believe that, that unless, you're, unless you have the Bible as it was received in the language that it was given, that then you don't have the authoritative word. But as Christians, what we believe is that this word, even though it has been translated, has been accurately preserved and handed down to us from generation to generation. That even though there have been corruptions that have happened, we have the Greek New Testament 99.999% accurate of what it actually was written as. And any place where there is a single question about a single word, we have a ton of evidence, more than any other document in the world, as to what was probably written. It does not affect one major doctrine 
And we have Hebrew Scriptures that are thousands of years old. And so this Word has been preserved and it's been handed down to us. And we, we have access to resources in ways that illuminate and show us meanings of words that some words we still don't know what they are and what they mean. They're words like Selah in the Psalms. And you're waiting for me to preach a sermon on Selah that is going to transform your life, right? Probably not. The reality is that we know what these words are. They've been accurately preserved for us because they come from a God who has been a God who is sovereign and rules over His Word. This is why Tyndale could say, I need this Word. I need, above all else, I need the Hebrew Scriptures. And it enabled Tyndale to persevere when he was in a prison cell north of Brussels in 1535, facing certain death. He knew, he knew, he knew without a shadow of a doubt what was going to happen to him. He was going to be burned at the stake. He was going to die with flames licking up his flesh. He knew that. He wanted a warmer cap, and he wanted war a warmer jacket, and he wanted a lamp, but above all else, he wanted his Bible. Why? Because the thing that is preserved by God is the thing that preserves and enables us to persevere. It enables us to endure. Life is hard, and there is so much in life that, wants us to, that tempts us to quit. There's so much in life that makes us want to just go, I'm done. We need a word that causes us to turn in repentance and faith, even from those attitudes. The fear of the Lord is clean. It brings us into the presence of God because His Word endures, which enables you to endure. And the last thing is, not only does it enable us to be persevering, but the last thing is it enables us to be righteous. It says in the, at the end, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Adam was supposed to come to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden because he was supposed to receive from God the discernment as to what is right and what is wrong. And the only way that we can know what is right and true is unless God has spoken. The reason that people know right from wrong is because God has spoken. It's just, it's just a matter of fact. Morality is not subjective. Morality has been given by God. And when we do wrong, we, He has given us a clear path of repentance and faith so that we would come back to Him. And what we need is a word that will keep us, that will restore us, that will make us wise, that will give us joy, that will enable us to see, that will enlighten our eyes, that will give us endurance when we feel like giving up so that we can do what is right. You see, Tyndale could say, I need the Scriptures above all because what, face, what sustained him, what gave him life, what gave him strength, what gave him joy in a cold, winter, dark, isolated 
prison cell. It wasn't just a warmer hat and a coat and a lamp. It was above all else, give me my Bible. Which is why Paul could say, even when he was alone, when he asked Timothy to come to him, not only to bring his cloak, but also to bring the scrolls, he would say. Bring the scrolls, bring the scriptures. We, we need the Bible, and we need to know this Bible more. Not because we need thicker heads and to be more doctrinal, but because this is how you know God. And by knowing God, you know yourself more. And the more that you know God, the more you'll, you'll understand yourself. Because this word is not just something that we need to do as a checklist to check it off. But it is your food. It's your life. It's light. So why do we need the Bible in 2024? Because if you're going to be restored and be wise and be joyful and be enlightened and persevering, and if you're going to be righteous and walk in righteousness, you will say with Tyndale, above all else, give me the Bible. So Lord, we need this word. We pray prayers of confession from people from the church from years gone by. We read those prayers of confession as a church because we need to learn from others who have learned how to pray, to pray your word and love your word. We need this word, O oh God. And so what we pray and ask is that you would help us. I need your word this year more than ever. We all need it. So meet us with the power of your word this year, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.